Undoubtedly, um, you've seen this movie clip. People always want practical application points and sermons, so, so this is it. Uh, don't play with fire, okay? particularly if you're a Nazi. This morning, we're talking about a Jesus story that I've never heard a sermon preached on, and, and I certainly have never preached on it. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. This is the New King James Version. Now, it came to pass, when the time had come for Jesus to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But the Samaritans, they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Just like Elijah did. James and John, you remember Jesus' nickname, the Sons of Thunder, and this is probably, probably why. This is what they were like. Um, sons of Thunder, they say, Lord, shall we call fire down from heaven on these Samaritans? Now, that's a rather obvious question, actually, if you know your Bible, because throughout the Bible, fire comes down from heaven and, like, consumes people. Genesis 18, God destroys Sodom with fire from heaven. Jude 7 tells us that they experienced a, quote, punishment or vengeance of Ionios or eternal fire. So the fire is eternal, but the burning is not, for Sodom's not, not still burning. It's past tense. They experienced a punishment of eternal fire because they practiced sexual immorality and unnatural desire. Some practice that today. And then others who are sexually immoral in other ways write laws about the sexually immoral in the first way. So they all deserve the vengeance of eternal fire. Exodus 16, 49. God says, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, which sounds vaguely familiar. Uh, pride, excess of food, prosperous Eve, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Well, th that sounds kind of familiar, a little bit like, like me. Well, fire comes down from heaven and consumes sinners, not just from Sodom, but Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, fire comes down and consumes sacrifices. And you remember that it was eternal fire, the perpetual fire that came down from heaven and set the altar ablaze in the temple 
in Jerusalem. It, it consumes sinners and it consumes sacrifices. And when Israel invades the promised land, you may remember that they were often told to present Canaanites as sacrifices in, in the fire. Haram, which interestingly enough, does not mean something that's worthless, but something that's like priceless and holy to God. The Canaanites are haram. They're, they're mine, says God. Well, in 1 Kings 18, Elijah refers to God as the God who answers by fire. Well, that means his word is fire. Is not my word a fire, says God through Jeremiah. 1 Kings 18, Elijah calls on God and fire comes down from heaven and consumes his sacrifice in front of the priests of Baal. In 2 Kings 1, the king of Israel in Samaria seeks the aid of Baal-zebub, Baal-zebub, king of Samaria, king of Israel in Samaria. At this time, Israel refers to the northern kingdom with its capital in Samaria as opposed to Jerusalem. Samaritans come from Samaria. Well, the king of Israel in Samaria seeks the aid of Baal-zebub, a pagan deity. And it was these foreign deity, deities that enticed the Israelites to sacrifice their children in fire in the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna. And yet Isaiah says that Gehenna itself is set ablaze by fire and brimstone from the mouth of God. So they sacrifice to Baal, but become sacrifice to Yahweh. Gehenna fire is often translated hellfire. Well, anyway, like I was saying, the king of Israel in Samaria sends a messenger to inquire of Baal-zebub, and Elijah stops the messengers, saying, don't do that, and sends them back to the king. Well, the king of Israel in Samaria then sends 50 men to get Elijah, and Elijah calls down fire upon these 50 Samaritan soldiers and burns them up. Well, that bothers the king, so he sends another 50 to talk to Elijah. And once again, Elijah calls down fire from heaven and burn, burns them up. Well, this is what James and John are referring to when they say, Jesus, these Samaritans are against you, so shall we call down fire on them, like, like Elijah. Well, back in 2 Kings, again, the, the king in Samaria sends a third group of 50, and the commander of 50 this time begs Elijah for his life. And at this point, the angel of Yahweh shows up. He's this weird Old Testament guy, God-man kind of guy. He's called the Word of God, the messenger of Yahweh. He's like made of fire, or he appears in the fire. He's the angel in the fire. He shows up and he basically says, Elijah, stop it. <laughs> um, don't be afraid. Go and talk to the king. Weird little story, context for what happens in Luke 9. Well, anyway, in the Old Testament, fire comes down from heaven, and God's prophets speak fire. Jeremiah 5, 14, God says, Jeremiah, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. But he's not talking about Sodom, them. He's not talking about Samaria, them. He's talking about Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is the people of God. That's like us. Jeremiah speak fire to Jerusalem. Well, anyway, the disciples asked, Jesus, is it time for a fire? Maybe we should preach some fire. This is one of those placards, you know, from Westboro Baptist Church. Here's, here's some more. 
God hates you, you're going to hell. Most Christians distance themselves from groups like Westboro Baptist Church, and yet they preach the fire in the very same spirit. Unless you repent before the, the day you die, God does not love you and he will never love you, but in fact he will torture you endlessly with eternal fire. Westboro Baptist may be just a little bit more forthright than, than most. Now you may think, okay, I get it. Uh, calling down fire, that, well that's an Old Testament thing, but, but now we do the Jesus thing, right Peter? We, we're, we're in the, the Jesus thing. Well listen to Jesus in the very next chapter of Luke. Jesus is talking about towns that reject him, towns like the Samaritan village in the chapter before, Luke ten twelve. But I say to you, that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom, which is an interesting thought, that day for, anyway, than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, and you, Capernaum, that's his hometown. Who are exalted to heaven, you will be brought down to Hades. And we know what happens to Hades. Hades gets thrown into the lake of fire on that day. And now listen to Jesus two chapters later, what we read last week, Luke 12, 49. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how I am constrained until it is accomplished. In places, you know, it sounds like the fire that Jesus casts upon the earth, or technically into the earth, is, is the Greek. Well, it sounds like that fire is himself. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7. When the Lord Jesus is revealed, writes Paul, from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction that comes from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day. And then the next chapter, verse 8, and then the lawless one, the Antichrist, the, the false Christ, the imitation Christ, will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the manifestation, the appearance of his coming, the epiphany of his parousia. It's like Jesus is the burning angel of Yahweh. You know, he's transfigured on the mountain before the disciples in this very form. He, he manifests just like this to St. Paul on the road to Damascus, destroying Rabbi Saul and creating the Apostle Paul. He appears that way in the Revelation, and it's his blood, the blood of the Lamb, that's poured out on the earth from the bowls of wrath like fire from heaven. So, so maybe preaching Jesus is calling down fire. Or maybe James and John are making a whole lot of sense when they ask Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven? You know, that word for heaven can also be translated sky. It's, it's one word in Greek, heaven uh, or sky. Out of all the people in all the world, Americans are probably most adept at calling down fire from the sky. Hiroshima, Nagasaki, shock and awe, we have the most terrifying air force in the world. We love to call down fire. That's why we hire so many policemen and lawyers and soldiers. It's why we preach hellfire to our enemies. And maybe we should do it more. 
Because isn't that what our Father, and we want to be like our Father, isn't that what our Father in heaven does? Isn't that what Jesus does? I wore a What Would Jesus Do bracelet in a movie theater once to see if it worked. Guy's cell phone went off, one of those obnoxious rings where it's a song, and he doesn't want to answer it because the good part's coming. <laughs> I had my hands on his neck, and then I saw my bracelet staring right back at me. What would Jesus do? So I lit him on fire and sent him to hell. Sorry, I just love that little clip. It's because it's so relevant. But WWJD, I mean, isn't that what Jesus would do? James and John are thinking, Jesus, isn't that what you do? Isn't that what we should do? Luke 9, 45, and when his, 40, 54, and when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. I just think that's fascinating. Your books, James and John, said, you do not know what spirit you are of. See, maybe calling down fire isn't the real issue. The real issue is what spirit you are of when you do it. Maybe Jesus would call down fire, but not in the same spirit. Do you see the spirit in the holy fire and that clip from the Raiders of, of the Lost Ark? It's beautiful, cries the Nazi. Problem is, he's not beautiful. So it burns him. I mean, maybe the spirit in God's fire is always the same throughout the Old Testament everywhere. Maybe the spirit in God's fire is always the same and the spirit in us is not always the same. And so sometimes it burns. You know, spirit is a thing that's not a physical thing. That means that two actions, two people, two places, two things may look exactly the same and be entirely different because the spirit is different. Right now, turn to someone next to you and repeat these words after me, okay? Just do it. I'm the pastor. Turn to them and, and say this. Say, my soul is aflame with love for you. Would you marry me? See, that's kind of what I expected. Not, a, not a, uh, much of a response. Yet, yet, listen, on October 30th, 1981, I said those exact same words, or at least the last part, um, to my girlfriend, Susan. She jumped in the air, knocked me over, gave me her entire life, and bore my four children. Exact same words, but an entirely different spirit. And the spirit was me. Maybe it's the spirit in the fire that makes all the difference. The difference between making love and rape. Isn't that the spirit in that fire that makes a difference? The difference between discipline and torture. 
Well, that's the spirit in the fire. I haven't told many people this, but several years ago, on more than one occasion, my daughter Elizabeth had a very traumatic experience. A man struck her, overpowered her, violated her will. His actions burned her dignity and pride. Although she kicked and she screamed, he held her down until she passed out. She woke up several hours later. She smiled, said, hi, Daddy, and gave me a kiss. <laughs> How many of you saw that one coming? <laughs> Let me explain. She was two at the time, and she was such a little hothead that she'd just go into a rage that she could not control, and when spankings just would not work, she was uh, actively terrorizing the whole Hyatt household. Something had to be done, and so I'd have to just take her to a room, hold her down on her bed until she fell asleep. Kicking and screaming and yelling and hold her down until she, she fell asleep. And, and I, as a young dad, would just be in absolute basket cakes, in, in, in need of extensive counseling. But in the morning, she'd walk in, hug me, kiss me, say, hi, Daddy, as if to say, thank you for stopping me. You see, she knew the spirit in the fire. She called him Daddy. She knew, even while she was in a race, that I loved her with everything that I have and everything that I am. But now imagine if she didn't know that. Imagine if someone else did that to her. Imagine if another spirit was in that fire. I mean, parents, you know exactly what I mean. It's one thing for you to spank your child, right? I mean, hopefully you agonize, you struggle, you inflict pain, and yet you feel the pain. I mean, you inflict the fire. The fire burns you even more than it burns them. It's one thing for you to spank your child, but it's an entirely different thing for someone that you don't know to come along and spank your child. In fact, you'll probably call the police and have them arrested. Same exact thing, but a different spirit in the fire. And if you ever do allow another adult to discipline your child, you make sure that you know them. And you make sure that they know you. You know that your spirit knows their spirit because spanking can burn skin and burn little hearts and the spirit in that fire makes all the difference. Scripture says that there is one God and Father of all and that God is spirit and God is a consuming fire. So you just ought to think twice before you play with fire and people that God loves. Well, James and John said, can, can we call down fire on these Samaritans? And Jesus turned and rebuked them sharply, saying, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. Humans seem to be awfully susceptible to spirits. You remember that one time when Jesus, or when Peter thought he was protecting Jesus, Jesus turned and rebuked him, saying, get behind me, Satan. In other words, Peter, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. In Scripture, there are lots of spirits, including each one of us. We're, we're spirits, and yet in any given moment, every spirit appears to be under the dominion of one of two spirits that are absolutely not the same. They are as different as light and dark, truth and lies, love and nothingness, substance and absence. Both are non-physical, but one is reality, and the other is the void. One is the spirit of the creator, and the other is the spirit of the desecrator. One is the spirit of God, 
and one is Satan, the adversary, the devil, the accuser, the dragon, his antichrist, and false prophet. In Scripture, fire belongs to God, and the eternal fire is said to come from his mouth, like a a word or, or a breath. You know, a word is meaning that rides on breath. Fire belongs to God, and yet Satan seems to steal fire and put it on his arrows, like in Ephesians chapter 6. In Revelation 13, the dragon's false prophet is allowed, as if God has to permit this, he's allowed to call down fire from heaven. Satan uses fire, but ultimately he hates fire because he comes to his end in a lake of, of fire. Satan uses fire for desecration. But God is fire, and he works creation through his word, his breath. There's a spirit of creation and a spirit of desecration. So Jesus says to James and John, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. And I think this is why God says in so many places, vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's like saying to the babysitter, spanking is mine. I will discipline. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says God. And even when he entrusts the Israelites to enact some of his vengeance on the Canaanites, he makes it very clear that those Canaanites are his. Haram, they belong to him, sacred Vengeance is mine, I will repay. I think we just don't understand God's vengeance. We think it's an act of desecration, when in fact it's an act of creation. How did I repay my two-year-old daughter Elizabeth when she rained down terror upon the Hyatt household? I repaid her by creating her in my own image. I burned her bad will, and I gave her my will, hopefully a good will. You know, that's the point of all discipline, isn't it? To create a good will in somebody. Deuteronomy 32, 35, vengeance is mine, I will repay. The word is shalem or shalom for repay, and, and it comes from the word shalom, before they put the, the vowels in the Hebrew alphabet, they were all one word. It means make peace. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. I will make peace. Psalm 62, 12, God shaloms. He repays our work, and to him belongs hesed. You see, I think he, he repays our sin with hesed, relentless love, grace. On the cross, Jesus repays our sin with grace, where sin increased. I mean, was there ever a greater sin than this? And I mean, didn't this like include all sins of humanity? Wherever sin increased, where, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, writes the Apostle Paul. But just as two-year-old Elizabeth, grace can burn. Grace burns in order to create. So what does grace burn? Well, in Luke chapter 9, it burned James and John. And what did it begin to create? It burned the sons of thunder, and it began to create James, the first martyr, and John, the apostle of love. It burned their pride and created faith, men 
in the image of God. It burned that thing in them that wanted to burn Samaritans. And it made them in the image of the good Samaritan. Jesus is going to tell that story that next chapter. Just imagine how that burned, you know? Imagine how the word of Jesus burned, especially after the conversation that these guys had just had. There's a context for the incident in Samaria. In Luke 9, 44, just before this, Jesus foretells his sacrifice of love, and the disciples just don't get it, evidenced by the fact that in verse 46, they start arguing among themselves about who's the greatest. In other words, they're competing for Jesus and for his approval. Jesus picks up a child and he says this, Luke 9, 48, he who is least among you all, will be the great one. The last will be first. The least of all wins it all. Think that one through, and that pretty much obliterates all forms of pride and renders competition absolutely absurd. Verse 49, next verse. Now John, son of thunder, answered and said, Master, well, we saw this guy casting out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he doesn't follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. Now that's an outrageously magnanimous statement to make, if you think about it. Those who aren't against us are on our side. But what about those that are visibly against us? Next verse, now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face and as they went they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him but they did not receive him. They were against him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. The Samaritans hated Jews and you know the Jews hated the Samaritans and the problem started way back before Elijah when the kingdom was divided between Israel in the north and Judah, that's the Jews in the south. Samaria was the capital in the north and Jerusalem was the capital in the south and they competed. They competed against each other for Yahweh and the worship of Yahweh. They each had separate temple complexes. And by the time of Jesus, the Samaritans were considered half-breed, half-breed Jews, considered that way by the Jews, and the Jews were despised by the Samaritans. Samaritans worshiped on Mount Gerizim, and the Jews worshiped on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. They were competitors. So when the Samaritans find out that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, they would not receive him. James and John want to call down fire, like Elijah. I mean, this seems pretty biblical. Just look at the story. Jesus rebukes him and says, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. You know, Scripture claims that the devil is the ruler of this world. And Scripture also says that there is a spirit of this world. Under the sway of that spirit, we try to make ourselves in the image of God by taking fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the spirit of pride. And it causes us to compete. It tells us that the one who makes himself first is actually last. The one who makes himself first is last, and the least is the one who is greatest. 
No, that's what Jesus tells us, right? I mixed that up. But you know it causes us to compete. In other words, it teaches us the least won't be first. The least don't survive. Who survives? The fittest. The survival of the fittest. Because life is competition. You know, I find it fascinating that the Nazis were the first modern government to officially incorporate that, that idea into their political agenda. Arguing that the Aryan race was the next evolutionary step. And so, of course, the Ark of the Covenant would just fry the hell out of a Nazi. I mean, Steven Spielberg got that right. The Ark of the Covenant was literally the stone law encased in a, in a mercy seat that formed a throne on which the pillar of fire would rest. It was a, a picture of grace sitting on the seat of judgment. Grace destroys competition and creates life. Competition explains death, why species die out. But only love explains life, why one molecule would surrender to another molecule, why one cell would sacrifice for another cell. Competition, pride, and envy, though, is what? It's the spirit of this world. And we all assume it. I mean, we swim in it, knowing not what spirit we are of. It's the spirit that drives me to make myself first by making another last, to make myself great by making another the least, to try and create myself by desecrating another. You know, sometimes when I suggest that Colossians 1, 19 and 20 is true, that God will reconcile all things to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross, people will say, well, then what's the point of the cross? If all will come to believe and be saved, what's the point of a savior? You know, which upon reflection is an utterly bizarre question. It's like saying, well, um, what's the point of a lifeguard if he saves every kid in the pool? What are we thinking? I think we must assume that salvation by grace through faith is a competition. And so Jesus Christ and Him crucified is not how we're saved, but it's a test to see who's smart enough to choose to be saved. In other words, we assume that we're saved by our knowledge of good and evil and the power of our pride, which we call human dignity or maybe free will. We assume I am my own salvation, which means we do not believe God is salvation. Yeshua, which means we're not saved. We assume salvation is a competition to love, which means we can't love because we try to beat the neighbor that we're called to love. In fact, in the name of love, we try to save ourselves by accusing our neighbors. Accu accusing, accusing. What spirit is that? The, the accuser. We assume that we save ourselves by calling fire down on abortion doctors, homosexuals, Muslims, pagans, unbelievers, and Samaritans. You know, according to numerous verses in Scripture, the fire does not only fall on Samaria. And the fire does not only fall 
on Sodom. It falls on Jerusalem. And listen to God describe how he will save Jerusalem. This is Ezekiel chapter 16. He says, Samaria has not committed half your sins, Jerusalem. I will restore their fortunes, both the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters. So God can destroy a thing and yet remake the thing. In fact, that's what it is to be saved, right? To lose your life and, and find it. It's to become the least with Jesus and to become the great one with Jesus. I will restore their fortunes, said God, and I will restore your own fortunes in their midst that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all that you have done, becoming a consolation to them. Was not your sister Sodom a byword in your mouth in the day of your pride before your wickedness was uncovered? Yet I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your older and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded, and never ever open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you for all that you have done, declared the Lord. When, when I atone for you that all, for all that you have done, De declares the Lord. Do you get that? Let, let me paraphrase. I, I think this is what he just said. Jerusalem, I'm going to save you by saving Sodom. Sodom needed to be destroyed by fire, but she will be remade and filled with holy fire. Jerusalem, I'm going to save you from your pride and the spirit of this age. I'm going to save you by saving Sodom and Samaria and then saving you in their midst, then you'll shut up. Then you'll bless your sisters like daughters. This will happen when I atone for all that you have done. And when did he do that? He did it on the day of vengeance. Isaiah chapter 61, what he read in the synagogue in Capernaum. He did it on the day of vengeance, the beginning of the year of the Lord's favor, when he repaid all of our sins with hased, mercy. He did it as Jesus lifted his head and cried, Father, forgive them. Who was he looking at? Jerusalem. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. They know not what spirit they are of. There his blood was spilt, blood that's wine, wine that's fire, wrath that's poured from bowls of wrath. And yet with those bowls, the wrath of God is ended. It is finished. With them, wrath accomplishes its purpose. You see, wrath has a purpose. With them, old Jerusalem is devoured by fire so that the new Jerusalem may be filled with fire. Isaiah prophesied that instead of empty shame for her sin, Jerusalem will receive a double portion, a double portion of everlasting joy. And there on his cross, he lifted his head and cried, it is finished, it is accomplished, it is ended. Then he delivered up his spirit, the spirit of God, the spirit of the creator. That spirit then falls on the new Jerusalem at Pentecost, and when that fire fell, all the disciples, you remember, all the disciples begin praising God in the language of all these nations, nations that had warred with each other for thousands of years. You see, the spirit of God fell like fire and burned the spirit of this world, setting Jews, Samaritans, Egyptians, Romans, Cretans, Arabs, setting them free, free to love.
and be loved. In other words, to live. In Acts 8, the church sinned, the church, the early church sends Peter and John, the son of thunder, to Samaria, where John finally calls down fire on the Samaritans. In other words, it's John that prays for them to receive the Holy Spirit, and they do. The Spirit that burns the spirit of the accuser. The spirit that burns the spirit of the antichrist, the false Christ, the imitation Christ. The spirit that burns the old man, the false self, the pride, the flesh. John calls down fire on his enemies and he destroys his enemies and creates his friends. And you can call down the same fire. Romans 12, verse 1, Paul writes this, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That means present yourself to the, to the holy fire. Then in verse 19, he writes, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And you see, maybe he does repay through you, because listen to what he says next. Vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, Feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. See, I don't think Paul is speaking metaphorically. Because he met this fire on the road to Damascus. It burned the hell out of Rabbi Saul and created St. Paul. You can call down that same fire and cast that same fire on your neighbor by repaying their sin with the mercy of God. Don't get me wrong. Sexual immorality, abortion, greed, idolatry, unbelief, they are not okay. It's just that you can't overcome evil with more evil. Next verse. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Maybe we've tried to overcome evil with more evil. And Jesus stands there saying, you do not know what spirit you are of. See, I think that sometimes each of us is called to preach fire. I think God sometimes is calling you to say the hard thing, the painful thing, the, the difficult thing, the thing that burns. I think sometimes God calls each of us to preach fire. It's just that before you do, you need to ask Jesus, Jesus, what spirit am I of? And you see, it is a spirit. I know this. I can speak all the correct theology. I can say all the correct words. I can get it all right, but if I do it in the wrong spirit, which I think I do sometimes, I'm a tool of Satan. So how do I have the right spirit? How do I know the right spirit? Well, how do you know the spirit of a friend? 
How did my two-year-old daughter know my spirit? I mean, people knew all sorts of stuff about me, but Elizabeth knew me. She knew my spirit. Well, I'd suggest, number one, spend time with Jesus. That's, that's why coming to church is important. Reading your Bible is important. I, I spend time with him. Talk to him. Walk with him. Know his story and seek his face. And number two, go to his cross and watch how he sacrificed for you. Let him burn the pride right out of you. He sacrificed for you, and he sacrificed for your neighbor. And number three, present yourself as a sacrifice to him, calling upon his spirit to fill you and to use you. Or, maybe even better, whenever you feel the need to call down fire on somebody, just pray for that somebody. Have you ever had that experience, you know? You're just really ticked off, you're furious, and, and you're getting ready to call down fire and then something in you says, well, maybe you ought to pray for him. And you pray for him and everything changes. I mean, maybe you still speak the same, same words. I mean, you still may be called to speak fire, but there will be an entirely different spirit in the fire. Not the spirit of the desecrator, but the spirit of the creator. The spirit of Jesus is the spirit in the fire. Now, I have a bunch of amazing stories about that involving exorcism, Satan, earthly fire, God's fire. This amazing vision revealing that Jesus is the spirit in the fire, for Jesus even redeems and inhabits stolen fire, so you don't have to be afraid of any fire. Amazing stories, but we don't have time to tell them. And I think maybe it's best that we don't tell them because you don't have to perform exorcisms. And you don't have to see visions to call down the holy fire. You just have to give some food and some water to your enemy. And you really and truly burn the evil one and free someone that God loves. You just have to be nice to a Samaritan the way God your Father has been nice to you. Luke 6, 35, Jesus said this, Love your enemies and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And what does that tell us? It tells us that there's a spirit in the fire, and the spirit is kind. This is the spirit in the fire. And in the days of his flesh, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do this in remembrance of me. Now that you know the spirit and the fire, Let's call down fire on us. Pray with me. Lord God, I, I believe that you are the fire and that you are grace and that the grace burns our pride and sets us free to love like you 
And so, Lord God, in the name of Jesus, even though at times it hurts, would you please send your fire? Come, Holy Spirit, and fall upon us. Judge us, Lord God, and set us free. Fill us, Lord God, and use us. Call us into your service for your purposes. Because, Lord Jesus, we see it now. You are good. You are the one we wanted long ago in the garden. You are the good one. And so we praise you, we worship you, and we say, come, Lord Jesus, come, Holy Spirit, come, Holy Fire. In Jesus' name, amen. The dark cup is wine, the light cup is juice. I believe that they both are fire. So come to the table and present yourself a living sacrifice. Amen. You just fell in to a burning ring of fire, children of Adam and Eve. And that's good news. Because now I know what spirit you are of. And you know what spirit you are of. So if this week you do something or you say something or you think something or you just have a really bad attitude like I seem to usually do, <laughs> Just stop and say to yourself, well, that's not me, because that's not Jesus. And that's the spirit that I'm of. And anything else, just give it to the fire. Surrender it to the fire. In Jesus' name, that's good news. This is the spirit you are of. Amen. Hey, thanks for watching the sermon. I uh, hope I didn't go too long or yell too much. I get kind of into it and excited. But I'm really grateful that you would join the sanctuary online. And uh, if the sermon was helpful to you, I hope that you would pass it on to other people just by forwarding the link to this video. And also, if you feel uh, like you would like to or led or however you would say that, um, the sanctuary exists on donation. So if uh, you would uh, consider donating uh, to the sanctuary, we'd be really appreciative. And you can do that by simply going to the website at uh, tsdowntown.com and uh, donating online through the donate button, or you can uh, mail a check-in. You can also sign up for an automatic withdrawal. But thank you for being a part of this ministry and have a